0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Thursday, July 27th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Boy Scouts of America have issued a statement about Donald Trump's recent speech at the Boy Scout National Jamboree. Michael Surbaugh, chief executive of the Boy Scouts of America, said this. I want to extend my sincere apologies to those in our scouting family who were offended by the political rhetoric that was inserted into the jamboree. This was never our intent. We had no way of knowing that a president who responds to terrorist attacks by tweeting I called it would possibly make this event about him. Furthermore, there was no way we could have possibly anticipated that President Trump would not adhere to the norms of decorum in a public setting. So if you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. Wait, I'm sorry. This is a written statement. How'd that get in here? Someone just earned their podcast merit badge. Sir Ball continued. He actually, this is actually in his statement. The invitation for the sitting US president to visit the National Jamboree is a long-standing tradition that has been extended to the leader of our nation that has had a jamboree during his term since 1937. And since President Trump is just like every other president, we couldn't have possibly anticipated what went on. We had no reason to believe that President Trump would act in any way contrary to our code, which is the Boy Scout law. I don't have to remind you what the Boy Scout law is. It says this, a Boy Scout is trustworthy.
2: Jersey City, New Jersey, where thousands and thousands of people were cheering as that building was coming down.
1: Loyal. And if he would, if he was going to recuse himself, he should have told me before he took the job and I would have picked somebody else. Mm-hmm. Helpful, friendly what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. Like to punch them in the face, I'll tell you.
2: We having a good time?
1: Obedient, cheerful, thrifty.
2: Trump National Doral in Miami. And it's a great place. I just spent $250 million rebuilding it, making it the best resort in the country.
1: Clean and reverent. I do have to say this. This is Mike. I'm not, I'm not in the guise of any Boy Scout. President Trump is clean. On the show today, in the spiel, some analogies. I'm in an analogous mood. But first, you know, George Bush, John F. Kennedy, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, they were all Boy Scouts. Gerald Ford, he was an Eagle Scout. But you know who else was Boy Scout? Ted Bundy, the BTK killer, one of the Columbine killers, a couple other serial killers like Arthur Gary Bishop and John Edward Robinson. You know they're serial killers. They've got three names. That's what they don't tell you. But you know who wasn't a Boy Scout? The son of Sam, David Berkowitz. I know that because I just got done watching a Son of Sam documentary appearing on the Smithsonian Channel. The executive producer of that documentary is here to talk about the famous crimes and the context in which they occurred. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender.
0: In New York, the search continues for the forty-four caliber killer who has come to be known as the Son of Sam. The Mayor and Police Commissioner Codd feel that the solution of all this is so important that they've set up a 24-hour telephone service number to call if you have any information.
1: 1977 was the Summer of Sam, meaning it's the 40th anniversary now, is actually, it's kind of a misnomer because David Berkowitz, who wound up being the son of Sam killer, had been killing for quite some time. But that is when the killings, usually of couples in parked cars, reached a fever pitch, gripped Manhattan, and uh, one of the largest Uh, police manhunts ever assembled tried to catch this guy there is a new smithsonian channel documentary about this called the lost tapes uh it's about the son of sam killing and tom jennings the executive producer of that special and of that series the lost tapes joins me now hello tom hello mike thanks for having me what's your personal connection were you uh, in the news business back then i was not i was in
2: school yes
1: uh, not
2: quite uh in the news business back then Uh, However, I was I am old enough. I do remember it. Um, I was actually living in Cleveland, Ohio, and it was huge news there because uh, Sam Berkowitz became like the ultimate boogeyman. Right. Right. He was the person hiding in the shadow no matter what city you were in. And you'd always wind up looking over your shoulder and you get that from hearing the interviews in the show which I love, these kind of man-on-the-street New Yorkers. Right. That you never see those in documentaries, these people talking about literally, like you said, living in, uh, living in fear.
1: And, and uh, I love old documentaries or really old movies just to see, say, screen, just to see street shots, just to see fashion, mm-hmm. also to hear accents. The accents, there is a pronounced New York accent now. Every single person interviewed in this had the thickest accent. It was uh, quite something.
0: Now, this guy, he's got to be stopped somehow, some way, you know. I think at mostly all your bars or discotheques, something like this, has to be watched for single guys that hang in in there alone.
1: First, let's just talk about the case and the crimes. He shot 13 people, and seven of them died? Correct. Yeah, and he would go up to, this was almost always the case, would go up to women in parked cars and shoot them through the window.
2: Correct. Usually, couples.
1: Yes, and this was in the early days of profiling, so people weren't really sure why he was doing it. What do we, or in retrospect, what do we figure out about his motivations?
2: Well, very true about early days of profiling. They were at first they thought he must hate women. Mm-hmm. He must hate women with long brown hair. That would seem to be the only thing that they could connect from one case to the next. Excuse me. I'm Jeff Kamen from Channel Eleven News. Do you feel personally threatened by the 44 caliber killer because you have long brown hair?
0: No, not at all. Uh-uh. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to go out in the car. I'm afraid to do anything. Never know where he's gonna be.
2: Did you ever think of cutting your hair because of him? Uh, no. I, I never thought of going
1: to that extent. just, uh, I just don't want to be recognized. I thought of maybe dyeing it a little redder or something. Really.
2: At the end of the story. What was going on is he said that there was an entity named Sam, who was telling him to go and kill people, and he just happened to pick people that were easy targets. And easy targets being in the outer boroughs, uh, places like Lover's Lane, you know, young couples parking, you mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, on a residential street to like hang out. Mm-hmm. And he would find them. He would park a few blocks away. He'd walk up behind them almost always. And he would start firing randomly into the vehicle.
1: He was clearly insane. And uh, even if he was not adjudicated to be. um, And so maybe we or the profilers at the time imposed some rationality or reason. I mean, this is what human beings try to do. They come up with a story that makes sense to them, even if what he did didn't make sense. But I always thought that the whole watch out if you have brown hair was... I mean, the vast majority of New Yorkers had long brown hair at that women had long brown hair at that time, and his last victim, I think his last victim, Stacey Moskowitz, St- she was a blonde, right? She was blonde so there was there were enough exceptions to this and and this is the big my big takeaway from this this was these were real killings these this was really terrible uh, obviously, this was so much a media creation. The media loved this the media. 89. Always loves yeah. this.
0: The largest task force in police history went into high gear as the city went into high fear.
2: It was New York. It was New York centric. So you're at the media capital of the United States. And the media became, in a sense, a character in the story because of Jimmy Breslin, who was the columnist for the Daily News at the time. Berkowitz, under the name Son of Sam, started writing letters to him. Mm-hmm about what he was going to do next and leaving letters at the scene the first first time they figured out his name because they used to call him you know when he started they called him the 44 caliber killer because that was all they knew was that it was a 44 caliber snub nose handgun and then he left a letter and yeah. he signed it Son of Sam.
1: And, and that was all they knew. The killings took place, some in the Bronx, some in Queens. If you're not from New York, these are places far apart that are hard to get to unless you have a car, which uh, he had. And th- every everything was so random. And often they were spaced very far apart. So f- originally, right, they didn't even connect a bunch of the killings.
2: I think it was the first six or seven months, three or four of the shootings had occurred all over the place, like you said. Queens, Bronx, Brooklyn, and there would be months in between. And yes. New York at the time, as you n- probably know, was not the New York that it is now. There was high, high crime.
1: Right. It was a mess. Right. Meaning there were probably dozens of other incidents that fit the exact three things we know about them. A random shooting, a forty four, and no clear motive. And, and they didn't see who the assailant was. Correct. And, and yeah. they were in different yeah. jurisdictions. Right.
2: So, you know, the Bronx isn't necessarily, you know, 109th Precinct isn't going to be calling Brooklyn about a shooting because they've had five that day anyway. And it wasn't until they started to realize, wait a minute, you know, they the cops started talking and then they realized that we've got a bunch of these that are happening in the same way. It was the kind of lover's lane connection. Yeah. And then they started collating all of that information. And then the long brown hair came out, always at night, always someone who pops out of the shadows and then disappears. People, you know, literally would see a figure, you know, any if there were any witnesses, just this, I mean, think about it. It's like a horror movie. It's this shadowy figure. Yeah. Bang, 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 bang. And then vanished.
0: The general description that we have is of a male, white, 25 to 30 years of age, five feet, 10 inches to six feet in height, medium build, well-groomed with dark hair, which is combed straight back, and wearing a raincoat type of outer garment, tan or brownish.
1: Keenan, what do you know about the way... So was this one of the first cases that uh, prompted coordination and uh, dragnets and manhunts based on profiling and methods and things like that? In New York... I think in the in the modern era, I think
2: we can kind of still include that in the modern mm-hmm. era. I think this is the one because they created this huge task force that eventually wound up having 300 officers and detectives on it, you know, going through everything you could possibly imagine to try and figure out who is this guy? Where is he going to strike next? I mean, in the film, as you may have seen, I mean, some of the detectives that are interviewed are saying, what
1: is it going to take? Yeah, And the guy says gonna take a lot of luck a lot of luck after (laughs) he strikes next right saying he's gonna do it the the detective doesn't even say we hope no one will die like after he does it we hope we'll be able to mobilize pretty quickly yeah yeah like
2: you know if we get there in time and this is at a time when there's no cameras on the streets you know communication between police cars is not what it is today Mm -hmm. there's no computers and you have a detective hoping yeah that they'll get lucky
0: we put the men out in the areas where we think or there's a, at least some uh, possibility that he's going to be in that area and hope that we're nearby when it goes down, you know, and hear the shots or get a report quick enough where we can get there.
2: And that shows you the desperation that they were. They were so willing to say that because they really had nothing else to say.
1: So what were the lost tapes about this? I know it's a brand, but what, what was lost and what you find?
2: Well, <clears throat> the brand is called The Lost Tapes because the idea is that we use no narration, there's no interviews, there's no modern-day people trying to tell you what it was like. We gather as much media as we possibly can, television, radio, print, put together a tapestry, if you like, of storytelling, so that when you're watching it, you feel like you're in it. So if someone who's unfamiliar or wasn't born back then can watch it and Our goal is to just give them a glimpse of what it was like to be in New York in 76, 77, to feel it as if it were happening right in the moment. One way I explain it, especially with a media-driven story, if you think about how the media works even today, there's a major event. There's a killing in the Son of Sam. Camera crews go out. They shoot and shoot and shoot. They were using tape back then. And those tapes are then sent back to the studio and some frazzled editor is going through and shuttling through that tape, pulling maybe two or three minutes off of what they need to tell the story for the broadcast that night. The tape comes out of their tape machine, you know, their editing equipment and goes on a shelf and 25 minutes of stuff that was shot is never seen again. When we go and we look for material from news stations, archivists, things like that, I don't want to see what was aired. Right. I want to see everything else.
1: Yeah, and you see there are, what is the term for this? At the at the end of a stand-up, a reporter stand-up, you'll see um, a little bit of uh, co- discoloration, because obviously that's the f- when... They were using film. Yeah, yeah, that's when the, the film stopped. Le- <laughs> and you'll leave that in to yeah, show how of raw course. it is. I was struck by the racial aspects of this. And there weren't two... It's not like your movie about the LA riots. They were very much under the surface. But every person in a law enforcement position was white. And whenever there was tape of how lawless New York was, not Mm -hmm. the Son of Sam stuff, it's almost always a black person.
2: Well, you're correct. Most of the detectives were white. Regarding the unrest, it's an interesting point you bring up because using this style, we can... Yes, we use everything that got left on the cutting room floor, but we can only use what that camera operator pointed at. Yeah. And what they were pointing at during when the lights went out. Yeah. During the blackout, which is part of the Sam story. Part of the
1: summer of Sam, yeah, 77 blackout. They
2: went to neighborhoods where there's mostly
1: African Americans that were, you know, uh, stealing things, and yeah. that's what
2: they pointed their cameras. And
1: that's at. what every—that's what the residents of the city saw. And right. one of the reasons why Son of Sam was so scary is that they were clearly targeting. There were only white victims. They were and they were unexpected
2: victims, you
1: know, and so and so these reporters would go up to, uh, you know, young white people. Are you scared? Are you are your movements being affected? They would say, yeah. So this was I mean, this the the subtle point was oh, he's for the first time he's coming for you.
2: He's coming for you. He's coming for anyone. He's coming to neighborhoods that this doesn't happen in. He's uh, I was talking with someone this morning about how his victims were not the type of people that you would expect to be victims mm-hmm. of violent crime. Yeah. And the media fed on that. And they made sure that people knew this could be your daughter. This could be
1: you. Another aspect that I hadn't realized until I saw it. Ready availability of guns in New York. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Right? Yeah. They were everywhere. S- signs on stores.
2: Gun guns, stores. Yeah. Right, uh, down in Times Square. Yeah. Uh, guns were everywhere in new york at the time that is true i was surprised by that too
1: do we know now, was he, I think of a couple of kind of serial killers or spree killers. As the spree killer who goes, it could be in one setting or it could be uh, from location to location, but usually in one day, they'll kill a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Serial killers, he was a serial killer. He had enough victims to be a serial killer. Mostly have a sexual motive, from what I understand. Um, Also, have more interaction with the victim. He never touched one of his victims, I don't think. So is he unique or... Are there others like him, just aren't as famous? With Berkowitz, uh,
2: there was a sexual motive, uh, but there was also just a very disturbed motive in that, you know, he he gave himself this moniker, the son of Sam, because he said an entity named Sam was speaking to him through his neighbor's dog. Yeah. you know, he had a very screwed-up childhood. Uh, there's, uh, you know, speculation that he was, reject- much like a Ted Bundy, another serial killer, rejected by a certain type of woman early in his life, long brown hair, uh-huh. and decided, I'm going to get back not only at her, but everyone who looks like her. And that's going to be my and, the, and her boyfriend. And her yeah, boy because yeah. he was rejected in
1: favor of another. The... Lost Tapes, Son of Sam, premieres Sunday, July 30th at 9 on the Smithsonian Channel. If you're one of those people who wait till things actually premiere, come on, you know how to DVR it and get it on demand. The Lost Tapes, Son of Sam, executive producer, Tom Jennings. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. I'm in an analogous mood. I'm in an analogous mood. Being in an analogous mood. Your words, they seem like food. If your ingredients call for butter, you could use olive oil or another. Glyceroid like palm, coconut, indeed. Vegetable or flaxseed. Or you could use just a dash of canola, Popular in parts of Hispaniola, if you're in an analogous mood. all right? Like, I was thinking of this analogy. Trump lies. You know he lies, right? Now, Trump's defenders will always say, well, every president lies. So I was thinking of baseball and home runs. And baseball players have always hit home runs. You would be naive to think they didn't hit home runs. Come on. Don't you know anything? How could you be so trusting? Like in 1917, Gavi Kravath he led the league, he hit 12 home runs. Before that, Gavi Kravath even had a season where he once hit 24 home runs. That Gavi Kravath, he was a great home run hitter. There was even a guy named Home Run Baker, and he once hit 12 in a year to lead the league. So don't tell me there are no home runs. Home Run Baker, it's right there in the name. Lion Ted, Home Run Baker. And then Babe Ruth came along. He led the league in home runs while he was still a pitcher. Then he had 29 home runs in a season, then 54, then 59, eventually 60. One year, Babe Ruth hit more home runs than any other team in the American League. The analogy is that Donald Trump is the Babe Ruth of liars. It's not as if no one ever did it before. It's just that he has taken it to such exponentially increased levels that he has changed the game as we know it. Let's move over to the legislative branch. We got the Senate. Normally, the Senate likes to craft legislation. Sometimes it's an open committee using regular order. Sometimes there's some closed session going on, but they craft. They put their time into crafting legislation. And I think of a band, a band that goes into the studio and really works out its sound. It uses engineers and producers, does multiple takes. You know what? Maybe an outsider will come in like a session musician and they'll sit in and maybe the purist will say, well, that's not supposed to be the way it's done. That's like a lobbyist helping the Senate craft its legislation. Let's not be naive. That does go on. But now we have this normally highly produced band and by the way, just being highly produced, that's not necessarily a virtue, right? The Beach Boys were highly produced, air supply was highly produced. But now, this band, that's the way they used to do it. Now that all of a sudden they become a jam band. Let's just let her fly. Let's see how the mood strikes us. Look, man, it's a Votorama. There's no structure, dude. There's no engineering. Hey, the senator from Wisconsin wants an amendment. No problem. The drummer wants to play the vacuum cleaner, acapella free bird. Sure thing, it's a jam band. That's now how we're doing business. We got a dark star teaser going that never ends. This is what the process has become, which brings me to skinny reform. Have you heard about skinny reform? So the Senate Republicans can't agree with what should go into the bill. So they've decided, well, here's our strategy. We'll pass a bill. We'll kick it to the House. They'll they promise not to vote, and then we'll decide on it in committee. Since we can't actually decide on it, we'll just enact something called a bill, and then a little later on in this jam band session, we'll figure out what it is. Now, here's an analogy. Let's take three brothers, and all they've decided is they really want to go into retail. But one of the brothers wants to open a hardware store, and another wants to open a dress shop, and the third wants to open an Ayn Rand bookstore. And they can't agree what kind of store they should have, The hardware guy and the dress guy. I mean, they're both brothers. They don't see eye to eye on anything. They have families back home. One of them really doesn't want a hardware store. The other totally does not want an Ayn Rand bookshop in their lives. So you know what they decide to do? We're going to rent the store and decide what goes in it later. Oh, also one other factor. The brothers have these whacked out cousins. These nine whacked out cousins. And they're really into the retail business idea also. But they're dead set on a vape shop. They're not budging on the vape shop. And the brothers are like, well, I really think the vape shop thing, it's not the best idea. But you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to rent a store. We're going to tell our whacked out cousins about the store. Maybe give them a chance to stock it with e-cigarettes, though they say they won't. And then hopefully one day we'll come to a decision about what kind of store it is. Could be a hardware store. Could be a dress shop. Hey, I got an idea. Maybe a Curves for Women. Is that thing still around? another analogy for skinny reform. Maybe skinny reform is like this. We got the same brothers and they all decide we got to buy mom a present. I mean, we've promised to buy mom a present, right? She'll really look down on us. if We don't buy her a present. Okay. We've all decided on that. So let's go around. Let's say what we should get her. Brother one, I say flowers. She loves gardening. Brother two, you're right. She loves gardening. I say we get some gardening gloves. Brother three, right? We can all agree that she loves gardening. Let's give her pounds of manure. Wait, 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 says the flower guy. That's kind of the exact opposite of what I'm thinking of. Well, then you're not a real gardener. We got to get a present. Look, maybe we just don't go in on it together. No, 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 no. And here's what they decide. Here's what we're going to do. We can't really decide on the present. We're going to buy the box. We're going to wrap it. We're going to put a bow on it and the gift wrap on it. And only at a later date will we decide what goes in the box because we promised her we'd get her a gift. And the most normal brother is like, and I think we all know that manure is a terrible idea, right, Ted? And Ted's over there saying, if you don't agree to send manure, you're not a real gardener. All right, then we're all decided. We're going to get the box and we're going to hope for the best. And that, my friends, that analogy, that is skinny reform, a jam band with a brightly wrapped box that might contain the fountainhead or a pile of shit. And now you see the clarifying power of analogies. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube is like the off-brand slinky that somehow got caught in the couch and came undone. Now it really just looks like scrap metal, but you know it was once a slinky, so you don't want to throw it out. Mary Wilson, just producer, she's like that picture of your outdoor cat in your office. And you look at it, and you really recall the cat fondly, but you wonder if it's ever really coming back, and when it does, what it's going to be dragging. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, he's like a cover song that you only heard as the cover, and then years later you heard the original, so you maintain that the second version of the song is the real version, even though you kind of know you're wrong, but what are you going to do about it? I mean, you were born when Bananarama and not the Four Seasons dominated the airwaves. The gist, we're just like that mud-based obstacle course that seems like an accomplishment, but maybe it's just an indulgence, putting things in your way that don't need to be there when real people have real obstacles and they don't post them so readily on social media. Umperu depperoo dooparoo and thanks for listening.
0: Ah, uh, mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on.